Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre, and we have just wrapped the first Grand Slam of the tennis season, the Australian Open, and we are thrilled to be back with one of our premier journalists in the sport to join us this week. She's the top insider for uh, the Women's Tennis Association. In fact, you can find her on Twitter at WTA underscore insider. Uh, Courtney Wynn, thanks so much uh, for coming back on the podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me. Hey, Courtney, last time we spoke with you, I think, was at the Rogers Cup uh, in 2019 in Toronto, which seems like forever ago now. Uh, (laughs) How have you found your uh, pandemic groove in terms of uh, your work with the WTA and, and how you've been forced to adapt over the past year? Yeah, I I think that's exactly the word, which is, well, the three words, forced to adapt. This is not the way that any of us wants to be covering tennis. Um, It is not a one-for-one, you know, having to recover, uh, cover events remotely and to not be able to interface with the players um, face-to-face, not be able to be courtside, watching matches, and just in general, just being on site and getting the feel for an event um, and the feel for you know, just what the players are going through and all that sort of stuff. So it feels like I'm kind of trying to do this with one arm tied behind my back, Um, knowing, and I guess a lot of it is the stress of knowing that I'm not doing as good a job as I know I could be doing if I was on site. Um, But we're all, you know, just trying to make do, whether professionally or personally right now. So, um, you know, it's, uh, we do our best to, to do, what we can, but it's, um, you do feel like you're, you're missing out a little bit on, on, on the vibe. Yeah, definitely a lot of limitations. And, uh, I mean, for you, at least you've formed so many, you know, good relationships with players on the WT tour during your time in, in this role. And it's an interesting role because you're, you're part journalist and, and part confidant in some ways I find to these players as well. I've, I've seen you up close and the rapport that you have with them to transition to the Aussie open. I definitely want to ask you about your rapport with Naomi Osaka in particular, and, and can you just talk about how your comfort level with her has grown over the years that you've worked alongside her? And, and at what point did you notice that, hey, this is a special talent that we have coming along here? Yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky insofar as I was one of the maybe like seven journalists that was in the room when she gave her first WTA press conference, which was after she beat Sam Stozer um, at the, the Bank of the West in Stanford in 2000, I guess, 15 or maybe 14, 15, somewhere around there. And I was working with Sports Illustrated at the time. And her press conference, aside from the tennis that she produced, I mean, the power that she um, showed at the time just from her forehand was stunning. And I think that if I remember correctly, Andrea Petkovic, who beat her in the next round, definitely used uh, uh, an expletive to describe the speed at which um, uh, Naomi Osaka was hitting that that forehand at the time. And But her press conference is what drew me in. And I knew nothing about her. I even asked the WTA communications uh, manager, does she speak English? I don't know. You know, you see Osaka in Japan on the board and sure, sure. Who, who knows? Um and uh, but she gave this utterly charming press conference, unlike anything that I've ever seen at that point, had seen or since really from from a tennis player. Um, I think the fact that that I'm Asian American also helps. We did a one on one after that. And there was just a a shorthand that we could both relate to with each other. And and so even just since then, I, I feel I hope that she has felt comfortable with me, you know, since then. Um, and really from the get-go, I felt pretty comfortable with her, as comfortable as you can around someone who at the time was 
herself admitting to everyone, incredibly socially awkward. And to see her grow and mature into, I mean, she gave her first press conference of the year in Australia um, this year ahead of the, the, the Gippsland Trophy. And everyone kind of took a deep breath and, and kind of sat back after five minutes of that press conference because we were like, wow, she, this is a different woman from, from, you know, five years ago, six years ago, obviously, but even from US Open to now. So she's, she's a special, she's special both on and off the court. And it's been a wild, wild ride to see the glow up, as it were, as the kids say. That's a, that's an excellent description. And I'm like, you're thinking of obviously the, the on-court ascent of her career and her play, what we've seen on the tennis court, but, but it's true. We're kind of all bearing witness to her blossoming off the court with her voice. And I feel like also in our digital world, her kind of delightful, charming awkwardness is relatable to so many online people. And now, you know, we, we basically have like a mega superstar um, just to, for the tournament itself. Um, the way she won this, um, I, I'm just fascinated. Like I go back to a week ago and she's down two match points against Garbina Muguruza, who was playing unbelievable tennis. And it was a scenario where, you know, Muguruza didn't get tight. Like Naomi just took it from her. So like, is this just one of these inherent qualities she has as a champion? Or do you think it's really just developed and it's gotten her kind of to a, a next level kind of, so to speak? Yeah, I think the seeds of it we saw even when she was a lower ranked player who was really someone that we considered a raw talent. You know, you saw the weapons, but you didn't know yet if she was going to be able to pull it all together and, you know, um, have, you know, in rally uh, shot tolerance, you know, be able to hit more than three of those four hands in a rally before missing, you know, things like that. Um, and, but the seeds were there. I mean, even when she was younger, she was beating big name players. And when she was given a stage, she performed. And that's something that from a young age, I mean, you, you know, this is why people get excited about Bianca Andreescu. This is why they get excited about Coco Goff is Iga Sviantek another good example of young ones who, yeah, maybe they take bad losses every once in a while, but when you put them on a big stage against a big player, they tend to show up. That's an exciting thing. And I don't know that that's a thing that you can teach, right? So you saw that from her when she was younger. And then as she has got, gained experience, um, you know, worked with, with top line coaches who have been able to help harness and, and kind of shave off the edges of her game and things like that. Now this is the player that you get. And um, yeah, I mean, I still remember you know, one of the big matches that stood out to me was the U.S. Open 2018 run that she had against Madison Keys in the the semifinals. And she like saved something like 13 of 13 break points. She didn't get broken. And I'm like, in your first major semifinal against Madison Keys, you know, and two rounds before that, she was down against Arena Sabalenka and pulled it out. So I think that the thing with Naomi, and I suffer from this as well, is that because of her demeanor, or at least her demeanor as it was as a teenager, soft-spoken, admittedly awkward, you know, you thought she'd jump out of her chair at, the, the, at a loud noise. Um, you think that she's weak. You think that she's soft. You think that she might buckle. And yet the empirical evidence that she has mounted over the course of her career is that she will not more often than not. And reconciling those two things four slams later, I'm still surprised 
I'm still <laughs> surprised that she saves those two match points against Muguruza. I'm surprised she rebounds after that horrific game against Serena Williams and doesn't lose another point for the rest of the match. You know, I it still surprises me. And I I keep asking myself why, because she's proven that she she does this. This is who she is. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I, you have to look back to January of last year, the actual time she lost uh, a tennis match taking the court, uh, which was against Coco Goff at the Australian Open. Um, I, I suppose the only question unanswered for Osaka is kind of, can she unlock the keys and deliver on clay? Is there any reason to think she can't figure out the clay court surface? And I suppose Wimbledon as well. Yeah, Wimbledon is a little bit more ironically, despite the fact that she has the weapons that you would traditionally believe to succeed at Wimbledon. And obviously, she's a Serena Williams acolyte. You know that she wants to win Wimbledon and and knows that her game, which is modeled after Serena's, should do well there. That one is going to be the steeper hill for for Naomi. It's just a a steeper learning curve for her. Um, But Clay, I mean, people, it's very easy to forget. And even at the time, I, I, I remember at the time being very annoyed at the general narrative around Osaka on clay uh, during the 2019 season, because she had obviously, you know, won the Australian Open and then she split with Sasha Bayan like immediately. Everybody was like, what's going on? She takes a terrible uh, first round loss to Christina Mladenovic in Dubai in her next tournament and just wasn't performing as you would expect her to. Indian Wells, Miami, they were fine, not great. And she steps onto the clay. She makes semifinals of Stuttgart. She makes quarterfinals of Madrid. She makes quarterfinals of Rome. She loses in the third round of Roland Garros in a nervy performance to Siniakova. But on the whole, that is not the resume of somebody who is bad on clay, right? I mean, Stuttgart is a notoriously difficult field. And, you know, obviously same for Madrid and Rome. So she has the bona fides there. And and that is going to, that's just a matter of time in my opinion, for her to to get up there. Now, it's going to be tougher to win because there are more clay court specialists that she will have to deal with. Like Simona Halep's game becomes more difficult on clay. Uh, obviously, a Sviantek, um, you know, th- there's players that are just really good on it that she's going to have to kind of overcome. But grass is going to be tougher because I looked it up. She f- played her first, she didn't play juniors. So she never played junior Wimbledon. The first time that she stepped on a grass court um, as a professional was 2014, a 50K in Fukuoka. Since 2014 through now, she has played 32 grass court matches in her life. It's not a lot. And, you know, and she's just going to need time to catch up on, on those, getting those matches, but it's going to be just mental, but, uh, but clay, she's going to be a dangerous player on clay. I have absolutely no doubts of that. I feel like we could turn this episode, this whole episode into just a Naomi Osaka feature and it would be a (laughs) heck of a lot of fun. Um, Mm -hmm. And and just, yeah, what a pressure performer. And, and, you know, I love hearing you talk about her evolution, not just on the court, but off it as well. But I do want to talk to you about a couple of players um, who have loads of talent, uh, who have won WTA tournaments, but haven't had that breakthrough yet at the slam level. One of them is, is a player I know you're a big fan of in Karolina Pliskova. And another is Alina Svitolina, who are getting up there now. I believe Svitolina's maybe 26 and, and uh, Carolina 28. Um, and, and I'm just wondering, you know, you work with them on, on a regular basis. Do you see them feeling that pressure and carrying that pressure along with them that they haven't had that slam moment and achievement yet? Um, I think of the two, I think, well, my sense is that it probably is... Um, 
a heavier burden on on Svitolina than it is on Pliskova. Um, I think with Carolina, there's so much about her as a person. Um, I, I, I consider her uh, on an episode of, of my, the podcast that I do with Ben Rothenberg, NCR, um, we were talking about Den- Daniil Medvedev. And is the loss to Djokovic going to shatter him? Is it going, you know? And my response was like, Medvedev's a pro. Like Medvedev is a guy that suits up, laces up, goes out there and plays. He wants to win matches all the time. He's not going to be devastated that he hasn't won a slam yet. That guy's self-worth is not tied to wins and losses, in my opinion, as opposed to maybe some other players that are out there. And Pliskova falls into the same category for me. I don't think that she's so heartbroken that she hasn't won one yet. She wants to, and she has the ambition, and she's doing everything that she can. But I don't think that it bothers her as much as maybe a Svitolina who, you know, is has to be feeling like she's done everything right, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, um, in terms of, of get, putting herself in those positions. And then something about that pressure seems to block her, where she puts in not great performances in, in quarterfinals and semifinals of slams, which is why she's working with a sports psychologist now and, try, and trying to address it. Um, whereas with Pliskova, she's putting herself in those positions. She's stalling a little bit. I think a lot of it does have to do with the pandemic, to be quite honest. I think that halted a lot of her momentum. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I hope that answers your question. I think that, you know, we want to see it for both of these players, but, um, you know, the, the field's getting deeper and, you know, they're getting older and, you know, the, the, tech, the, the plates start to shift a little bit. Seems like more yeah. pressure these days too. And I think, you know, the media is big time responsible for some of that as well. Focus so much on the majors. And I know I've seen you on Twitter throughout the last year coming to the defense, I guess, for lack of a better term of all the other great events that are out there. Um, and uh, it, it just, it's tough. Cause I don't remember it being that way when I was a kid watching tennis, yeah. it wasn't just all about the majors. And I think pros were able to celebrate those other moments more, you know, than they're perhaps allowed to nowadays. Well, it's an interesting point as well, because you, first of all, you're 100% right in terms of how things have changed over time in terms of how we as a sport value the, the slams more than tour level events. And uh, Martina Navratilova, I asked her point blank this a few years ago as to why that was happening. And she said money. At the end of the day, the slam prize money went through the roof. And so, of course, players are going to talk about them like they're the most prestigious events and they're going to get the big television contracts and you're going to have, you know, the most preeminent commentators in your country talking only about the slams because these they aren't covering the other events. You know what I mean? It's kind of a business decision. But at the same time, one of the big things is, you know, it creates this inordinate amount of pressure because now the players feel like they have four bites at the apple a year to for glory when no you and i think this is where the atp has done a really good job with the masters events because the atp masters are a thing right mm-hmm. you win a masters it's like it's it's the next step to 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 winning a slam you know um they've done a great job marketing those nine events and that's um, a new development too in recent years i find exactly exactly right i mean that was a marketing package that, they, you know, they didn't. and so that's the funny thing about when in the way that the conversation has changed over time with respect to how we discuss tour level events and, and slams, it's not an intrinsic thing. In, in other words, it's not true that one is more 
important than the other. It's simply marketing. It's, it's what you're told. And especially, you know, in an era where Federer is breaking all these records and Serena's breaking all these records, and then Serena starts playing less and really starts gearing towards playing just the slams. Those are the point of her career, right? Which makes sense. And it's a hundred percent, you know, but then what happens to what then happens is then the belittling of, oh, well, Halep's like Halep won Madrid, whoop-de-doo. You know, it all kind of started with that one quote, you know, of like Dinara Safina, oh, she won Rome in Madrid and, and saying it sarcastically when actually that's an incredible feat to, in two weeks to play against a master's field. And when, you know, people say like winning back-to-back um, Canada, Cincinnati. Like, how is that easier or lesser than winning a slam over two weeks? If you're winning in some, in some ways, it's right? Yeah, playing every darn day. It's 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 12 to 13, 14 matches over two weeks against a tighter field, no chaff, no, you know, no lower ranked qualifiers. The Indian Wells Miami double, impossible. Mm-hmm. You know, like those are feats where I feel like, you know, it's the responsibility of like the commentators and the journalists and you know, the influencers, quote unquote, to kind of course correct a little bit and be like, okay, hold on. Like <laughs> why are we saying that one of these things is more prestigious? Like, let's, it's fine if we do, but let's ask why. <laughs> that's a, that's a great point. And uh, a very good segue really to Serena Williams, because yes, you know, these large faces, Serena Federer, especially at this stages of their career, Novak as well. Um, priority is of course the slams. And when we're talking about pressure and priority, you kind of feel like as a Serena fan, probably they feel like she does just have four big shots each year. Um, it doesn't seem like we're talking about when she plays other tournaments. And speaking to this tournament, I, I thought she played remarkably well uh, reaching the semifinals. I thought her movement looked the best it had looked in years. And then, of course, um, you know, she was she was shut down by Osaka in straight sets. I was there during the press conference uh, for Serena after the loss. I, I gather you were there as well. And I, I just sensed I sense she was emotional, not because she feels like, oh, this is the end. I felt it was more like, maybe I really missed a very good opportunity here. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I definitely side with you more <laughs> um, on that interpretation. I mean, my thought was, because I had the same thought as you, which is, this is the best that she's looked, um, fitness-wise, movement-wise, tennis-wise. Um, and she knew it too. I mean, you saw her reaction, you know, after after beating Halep and the way that she played and almost Halleped Halep, you know, made it physical and won all the long rallies. And she was so rightfully pleased with herself and proud of what she had done and excited about what that meant, you know, for the next cu- next couple of matches. And what I saw was somebody who who just doesn't know what more she has to do to get over the hump, you know, because this is, like I said, you know, it, it reminds, I mean, this is a weird analogy, but follow me. Um, But it's a little like, it's like being an, a B plus to A minus student, just because you're kind of an inherently smart kid uh, and you get, but you didn't do the homework and you kind of faked your way through it and you're really good at BSing and, you know, and people have bought it your entire, you know, and it's, it's gotten you really far. And you also have thought, yeah, I'm really smart and I don't even have to work that hard, um, which means I must be even smarter. But what happens if like you then decide to work hard and do all the homework and cross all the T's and dot all the I's and you get your paper back and it's like a B? 
you know, like, it's like, wait, you know, it's a referendum on you. And so I think that with Serena, she looked so good and she was playing so well and she, she did every, she played a lead up tournament and she looked great in that everything she did, she did the right way and she still came up short. And I think that the emotion is a little bit more, I don't, with a, with a clock somewhat ticking, mm-hmm. you know, because she doesn't have 20 more shots at the apple. Um, you know, what, what more do I have to do? Because I feel like this time I did it right and it didn't happen. And, and that's, that's, you know, that's a pretty rough thing for someone who's won 23 majors to kind of reckon with, you know, it's, it's mortality in a lot of ways. I thought for a moment there, you were commenting on my academic um, history in terms of (laughs) being a slacker when I was in high school. And I was a total slacker. That's why I was going to make it about me, but I was just kind of, I made it about a random person, but yeah, I, you know, total slacker. Damn. I thought someone leaked some information to you there. (laughs) Um, Hey, look, it wouldn't be match point Canada if we didn't ask you about the the Canadian crew and how they fared this year. And it, it seems like every time we talk to you, there's, there's more Canadians to speak of, they either keep coming out of the woodwork and, and coming up the ranks like Leila Annie Fernandez, or they come back to tennis like, you know, Sharon Fishman, Rebecca Marino, um, so many great stories. Which of the Canadians, I mean, you can pick any of them if you want to, but what storylines kind of gripped you? Obviously, Bianca was a big one for us to see her back on court after 15 months. Maybe touch on one or two of the Canadian storylines on the women's side that, that you were following during the Open. Yeah, I mean... I'll talk about Bianca in a second, but, but Rebecca Marino, I think just captures the imagination of everyone. And um, it's just somebody that you just, with every fiber of your being, you want her to do well and you want not for her necessarily to win matches or to win titles. Like it's not about that, but just to do well, you know, and to, to do whatever and get whatever it is that would make this comeback worthwhile for her. Um, is really what what I want for her. And so just following her, you know, through that tournament, through qualifying even, um, and just um, getting excited for her is great. And she's obviously been a wonderful, um, uh, yeah, just a wonderful voice to have back in the press room and in the interview room. So um, I think I could speak for the entire WTA web team that when, you know, Rebecca Marino plays, we kind of all have, doesn't matter what match we're on, but we kind of have our eye on the score or uh, uh, on a stream. Um, But I was just so pleasantly reminded how much I missed watching Bianca Andreescu play tennis. That was one of, that was one of the, my big across the board takeaways from the Australian Open. Um, You know, out of sight, out of mind sometimes in this sport, that's just the reality. It's a very, what did you do for me today, yesterday, three weeks ago? Who cares? You know, like this sport moves on so quickly. Mm-hmm. And um, her match against Buzernescu and the way she fought was vintage stuff to me. Couldn't do it against Shea Sue. That's all right. No one ever is going to cry a tear for losing to Shea Sue. Um, but even, you know, sticking around and then and then just playing just some roller coaster matches in the Phillip Island trophy, which was the 250 that we had the second week of the Australian Open. Um, that was really fun to watch too. The attack of the birds. It was, it was all happening. And it was just a reminder of of what I really love about Andrescu's tennis and just her as a as a character on tour. She just pulls me in. It just, she just does. It's compelling to me. It's all there on her face, in her body, you know exactly what she's feeling and she takes you with her and she doesn't keep you at arm's length. 
you know, and it's a very unique competitive quality. Not everybody has that. Um, and it's, it's special. So I could not, and I apologize. My dog is going nuts. I think nuts your pup is a Bianca fan. He's too, a huge Bianca <laughs> fan, a huge Bianca fan. Um, heard her voice in the press conference. He ran into yeah. my office. It happened. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I just, I, I missed watching her play. I'm happy to have her, you know, back into the mix and yeah, it was, it was, it was nice. It was really nice. Yeah, we had uh, we had certainly a lot of uh, Canadian tennis fans, despite her playing in the wee hours of the morning, like glued to the TV, watching her every move. And that was just beyond beyond the Australian Open. That was at the Phillip Island Trophy as well. Um, you know, complete diehards. And and you're right. Each match with her is is a bit of a journey. She really takes you in. One of those compelling athletes. Um, just to wrap, I suppose. You know, we had great stories here at the Australian Open. Jennifer Brady breaking through for her first slam final. Terrific performance. Carolina Muhova had, a, had an awesome tournament. So many players to watch for. Do you have a name or two maybe you're keeping an eye on for 2021? Someone um, you're not necessarily projecting a breakout season. Someone that you would just love to watch and, and tell fans to, to check out. Yeah, I am going to ask uh, your Canadian listeners to pay attention to a great young player south of your border, uh, but uh, uh, Ann Lee. Um, she's a, a younger, a younger American was prime looking good for a breakthrough last year. Uh, won her first main draw, uh, qualified for her first WTA main draw in Auckland, won her first round match. So it was her first main draw win, uh, and then, uh, qualified for the Australian open and got a couple wins there. Um, anyway, she, then the pandemic hit didn't get to play and then picked up right where she left off. It seemed like she made the final of the um, Grampians trophy. She beat Jen Brady um, in the semifinal in a three setter or two sets in a match tie break um, fluid game. Um, she loves Roger Federer and she plays like a girl who loves Roger Federer. Like, I mean, just amazing touch, Great backhand, two-handed, but she does a lot with it. Great feel, loves to get herself to the net. Just a fluid player to watch. Great kid. Um, yeah, that just pay attention to her. She'll be up around probably uh, around 50 or so, 60 or 50 with her with her run in Australia. But um, yeah, just keep keep an eye on that one. That's my that's my hipster pick for you guys. Otherwise, I feel like <laughs> I, I feel like everyone else, y'all know. So mm -hmm. nothing we'll, too we'll, nothing too mainstream. I think it was the yeah. Rogers Cup when we saw you, where you're like, you know, Carolina Pliskova doesn't get enough attention for someone who's top five. But now you're definitely giving us something uh, a little bit more off the board. So that's cool. We'll we'll follow along. Um, hey, before Ben says uh, thanks you for joining us, I, I just want to say, and, and our listeners can't see it, but your backdrop <laughs> in the press conferences gave me something to do while we're waiting for players to show up or in those moments where a question's not really doing it for me. And I'm just, there's so much to look at there between the bookshelves and the pictures and the, I just want to say job well done. Thank you for keeping it so, so interesting and vibrant in the background. That is just uh, literally I'm in my childhood home uh, and this is, uh, I'm in my office, but um, it's, it's a lot of bookshelves and it's just the accumulation of university, master's degree, casual reading, book nerd, 
and everybody thinks that one side of the the room is also books, but it's just board games. So it's not really actually as academic as as it <laughs> looks, honestly. So don't worry. <laughs> well, I'm trying to remember the last time you were on the podcast. Did you tell us you studied law? Is that correct? I did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That that could uh, explain some of the accumulation of books yes. in the background. Okay. All right. Perfect. There's um, definitely a whole section. <laughs> that's that's at, one of the best backgrounds on the virtual uh, stream <laughs> of our press conferences in tennis. Uh, Courtney, thanks so much uh, for joining Matchpoint Canada. We always love uh, your analysis on the women's side and, and the deep dives. Um, I live for it. So that's great. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Absolutely. Looking forward to seeing you in person, uh, hopefully in 2021. 100%. There you have it, Courtney Wynn of the WTA, and you can find her on Twitter at WTA underscore insider. So much knowledge about like every tournament across the women's tour. Uh, she is just a wealth of knowledge and uh, has really seen Naomi, Naomi, Naomi Osaka's ascent, pardon me, up close uh, since dating back to 2015, kind of recognizing this is a special athlete sort of in front of her eyes. And uh, I mean, look at what she's done now. 4-0 in major Grand Slam finals. Um, the first player since Monica Seles 30 years ago to win her first four Grand Slam finals. So impressive. She's so good in those moments and um, really just seeing the development on the court. And as we spoke about seeing how comfortable she is in her own skin now, it seems, you know, and, mm -hmm. and how she's adapted to the sudden success of her first uh, Grand Slam at the U.S. Open and how she admitted that that weighed on her and that pressure was really something to adapt to and, and falling out of love with the sport uh, and then finding a way to be happy while, while competing. And Clearly, she's got to be happy now. Four slams puts her into, um, you know, a pretty prestigious category of player, I would say. It definitely bumps her up in terms of how she fits into the overall WTA landscape and, uh, you know, with, with some of the great performers. And she's got so much time in front of her, so many years ahead of her, but she's already proven that she's a, a money player for sure. And I just love listening to her. Like, there, were, mm -hmm. there was no other player whose press conferences I wanted to be there for as much as hers, not even necessarily to ask questions, but just to just soak it in and, and enjoy it because it was, uh, it was definitely entertaining on many levels, um, listening to the way she speaks, which is completely different from any other player out there, male or, or female, I find. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada. We are the official podcast of Tennis Canada. And of course, uh, we have to wrap up on the men's side and Maybe we thought ahead of this tournament, certainly as the tournament went on, Nadal sort of discussing a back injury, Novak Djokovic dealing with an oblique injury and potential muscle tear. We were pegging this as the moment. We're going to see the next generation breakthrough with kind of members of the big three in the field. Um, but Novak is just simply the king in Melbourne, winning a record ninth Australian Open. 9-0 um, and in Grand Slam finals now at Rod Laver Arena. And 9-0... and in the semifinals of matches as well. Once he gets towards this tail end of a tournament um, in Australia, it's like he hits another gear and, you know, he was just in the zone against Dino Medvedev in this final winning 7-5-6-2-6-2. You just kind of be out of your mind to bet against Novak when we arrive in Australia to start a tennis season. Yeah, not even a tear in the abdominal muscle could, could hold him back this time. And I got to be honest, despite his eight previous Aussie Opens, I was leaning more towards Medvedev in this one. And, and that's no disrespect to Novak, but, but look at Danil. He was on a 20-match win streak 
And 12 of those matches, 11 or 12 of those matches were against top 10 opponents as well, thanks to playing the ATP Tour Finals at the end of 2020 and then the ATP Cup to start 2021. This was a guy who was coming in as, as hot as they could be with that streak. And Novak dispatched him, you know, rather routinely in, in three sets. So I was thinking if Novak was to prevail, given how well Medvedev was playing and, and given that Novak wasn't at or near 100% physically, it was going to be at least a five-set effort for him to do it. And uh, so just the way that he did it, absolutely incredible. Hats off to Novak. Um, his dominance at the Aussie Open is not quite up there with Rafa at the French, of course, because that's just, you know, total freak of nature. But uh, it's it's sure close. It's one of the all-time great achievements in terms of performance at one tournament. Yeah, uh, I love when uh, Medvedev in the post-match press conference <laughs> referred to the big three as the cyborgs of tennis. And um, the flame count between the big three is now at 58, 20, and 20 apiece for Federer and Nadal and Djokovic closing in with 18. Um, and this stat kind of blew my mind. Since the 2003 tennis season, a big three player has won a Grand Slam every single year. We're talking about going back 18 years ago, which is just like, it, it really blows your mind. We've seen different generations in that period, in that time frame, come and go. And yet these, these guys are still here, uh, the cream of the crop and at the top. Um, for Novak, you know, despite the injury, I, I felt like it didn't seem to perturb or bother him essentially when he got through, I would say, Sasha Zverev. He looked maybe to be struggling with it a little bit against Milos Raonic, hit a bit of another level against Sasha, and then semifinals and finals, um, he was in the zone. And we talk about Medvedev's toughness and like lengthy rallies and exchanges. One thing I took away from the final was Djokovic was winning the bulk of the long rallies. And we talk about Medvedev as the guy who's not going to miss. He's not going to break down at the baseline. It was Djokovic who refused to relent in this match. And um, he served incredibly well. He actually led the field in aces, which we don't really think of when we think of Novak. So really just a very complete player right now. And I, I think the rest of the tour is trying to find some keys to solve this mystery of how do you beat Novak on a hard court? I mean, when you're a cyborg, I mean, these things are, uh, you know, rather <laughs> routine, I guess, for you, really. But, uh, you know, listening to Medvedev after the match, and, and I know Courtney was speaking earlier about how she didn't think he was the type of player that would really hold on to a loss like this for long. And he admitted to that fact as well in his post-match press conference and said, hey, he gave it his all. Novak was, was too good. And mm -hmm. he had so many complimentary things to say about Novak. And, and I think for anyone who's, you know, judgmental or, or unduly critical of Novak Djokovic go and read the press transcripts of what the other players are saying about him because I mean aside from Nick Kyrgios who we're going to discount right off the bat anyways I feel like everyone else is is talking in in a very positive way about Novak and and how he treats people how he takes care of other people uh, Medvedev had a story about when he was ranked not even 100th in the world how Novak was giving him access to his private jet to get to a Davis Cup tie you know things like that that he wouldn't have to do. Those are things that aren't in view of the media or, or tennis fans, and yet he's doing them. So um, I, I want to say I'm, I'm happy for Novak. He has put up with a lot of uh, unnecessary criticism, uh, some necessary criticism, of course, off the court, but a lot of unnecessary criticism. And uh, I think, uh, you know, it is nice to see him have his moment. And it just makes things all the more interesting now with the all-time Grand Slam count as Roger and Rafa each have 20. Novak now has 18. 
and a very real possibility, I think, that he might tie those other two players in 2021 with Wimbledon and the U.S. Open being uh, very realistic opportunities for him. Definitely very realistic opportunities. I think you'd have to peg him as the favorite at slam number three and slam number four. Of course, we don't know what's going to transpire for the tennis calendar season. Um, naturally, we would you know, name Nadal as the favorite at the French Open when he has won there 13 times. Um, bringing to Rafael Nadal uh, another kind of surprise ousting in Melbourne, especially circumstance-wise, Stefano Tsitsipas was down two sets to love against Nadal. And normally, you know, two sets to love down is, is a bad proposition to begin with. When you're facing one of the big three, it feels like an absolutely impossible task. Um, but he stormed back, won this tie break where Rafa was a little patchy with a few points. And then Tsitsipas played unbelievable tennis for sets four and five. Just the second player ever to beat Rafael Nadal um, when trailing two sets to love down at a major um, Natal was asked afterwards if he is cursed in Melbourne. This guy has won only one slam at the Australian Open, and it feels like there's always something that goes wrong for him. Um, but he dismissed that notion and said, no, no, I'm, I'm not cursed. Just like sad for the loss, but, but we move on. Yeah, Nadal is, is definitely not cursed when you look at his achievements uh, in Melbourne, including yeah, winning it once, which is something that most players would be you know, overjoyed with, making four other finals. You know, The only player I can think of that's cursed at the Australian Open is Andy Murray, who lost five finals in seven years. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you want to talk about anyone being cursed, it's, it's Andy. And unfortunately, now it, it looks to me like really his time has, has come and gone in terms of contending at the, the you know, the slams. Um, but for Rafa, um, I think, you know, he's, he's gotten the most out of, um, you know, some years where he struggled physically with injuries, still made it to the finals. Um, so I, I don't think he's hanging his head and wondering if he's, if he's sort of, you know, being tormented by the tennis gods there. Um, certainly was surprising him being up two sets to love, but I think also credit to 22-year-old Stefano Sissipas, who is without a doubt in that uh, group of guys who are going to assume the mantle of men's tennis when the big three do uh, hang it up or, or experience a, a drastic decline. Um, I do think in that fifth set that the fact that Rafa's 34 and, and Stefanos is 12 years younger certainly came into play in terms of having a little bit more, you know, juice in the legs and whatnot. Um, and so, you know, CeCe Pass, who's made now three um, Grand Slam semifinals in his career, won the ATP finals in 2019. Um, it's not a shock to me that, that he's having a moment like that. No, uh, no, it certainly is not. Uh, Daniil Medvedev proved too much. You know, we've talked three of the four semifinalists. I, I don't think anybody had this other name written as a possible semifinalist at the Australian Open. Russian qualifier Aslan Karatsev uh, became the first player in open era history to make the semifinals in his main draw debut. And he's doing it at 27 years old. This is basically a guy who's been kicking around at the challenger level, uh, you know, grinding it out for years and years. And if you looked, I guess, at his 2020 carried over into 2021, you'd say, okay, well, this is a challenger guy who's now playing the best tennis of his career. He won a couple challengers, was in a, another couple of finals, but certainly no one could have possibly expected this type of run. One of the victims of his great tennis was a Canadian Felix Ojealiasim as well, who was up uh, two sets to love against uh, Karatsev, who stormed back. Um, a side note to this and his story, you know, he entered this tournament as a qualifier, ranked 114th in the world. And a few tennis commentators, you know, ourselves included in this, weren't familiar with his game. You know, we don't 
necessarily watch the challenger tour i don't think listeners hey, don't drag me into this with you man. i was <laughs> okay. such a carrots of expert i've been I'm waiting sorry. for this breakout moment for years yeah man, but... yeah you're right no <laughs> continue um yes anyway a few tennis commentators uh made admission of the fact of not knowing carrots evan his story uh, ahead of this event and that seemed to tick off a couple of lower rank players one in particular veteran player who's famous for a wimbledon win over Roger Federer was uh, Sergei Stakovsky, who uh, targeted a couple journalists about not knowing all of the players. It is your job. It is your duty. You have to know the top 200. Um, you know, Stakovsky also entered my mentions in anger uh, as I defended uh, another journalist about not knowing Karatsev. Um, you know, I think as a baseball reporter, reporter you're not going to know every single baseball player who takes the field now we know him he not only qualified for a major but made a semi-final run um Stokowski, from your perspective fair or foul I mean he was quite rude to me I should be clear I even invited him I even invited him on our podcast but he took no interest in discussing what he was angry about yeah, I, I was wondering if you guys were besties yet, if you'd worked that out on, <laughs> on Twitter, but not yet. I was going to come to your defense. I swear to God I was, but I was having too much fun just scrolling through and, and seeing the back and forth and not just with you, but other people who were chiming in as well. And mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's kind of par for the course with Stakovsky in terms of some of his other Twitter battles and beefs over the years. So it didn't surprise me at all. And I thought it was interesting how he mentioned that, you know, all tennis journalists should be aware of the top 200 players in the tour. And then just for, you know, you know what, and giggles, I looked up what his current ranking was, which was right on the dot number 200. So we'll have to <laughs> yep. see where, where he lands on Monday. If he's outside the top 200, I guess we don't have to know much about him anymore. But uh, you know what the thing is, I do feel like, you know, just to try and balance things out here a little bit, I do think obviously people working in professional tennis and, and those doing it full time, of course, should have an awareness of the, the players in the, the top, um, you know, echelons of the game. That being said, the top 100, the top 200 is, is always moving. It's fluid. You know, someone who's in the top 200 yep. now wasn't there a few months ago. And that was the case with Karatsev is he was only really in the top 150 as of, I believe, late summer, early fall. So I think we can be forgiven for not having him on the radar um, and, and especially not at the start of a grand slam. Look at the start of a slam. You're looking at the contenders. You're looking at some dark horses. You look at the draw overall. But I don't think a guy like Karatsev was on anybody's radar to have that kind of a breakthrough. We certainly know him now. Mm-hmm. We'll never forget his name again. Um, but, but I think it's fair. And, and for, you know, I think it was Nick McCarville, who's a friend of our podcast, who got the whole thing uh, rolling. So thanks, Nick, for, you know, giving Ben that moment to interact with Sergey. <laughs> um, but, but I feel like his comment also was, I don't know if tongue in cheek is, is the right, but I think he was just basically saying like, hey, who would have seen this guy? having such a run like this. And I think that was more the comment as opposed to saying, Hey, if you're not in the top 100, we don't pay attention to you. I don't think that's true. Um, and, you know, maybe it's a good reminder for all of us to look a little bit deeper as well. But uh, again, if you're not a Russian tennis journalist, I, I, I honestly don't expect, I would never expect anyone to know the Canadian players outside the top, you know, 100, 200. Uh, no, I mean, basis. Yeah, I mean, certainly plenty, plenty of journalists would be forgiven if they didn't really know about Steven Diaz before he qualified for the French Open and qualified for his, his first major ever. We knew this story because we were kind of in touch with the Canadian players and what they're doing. Um, but what we're looking for, at least ahead of tournaments and ahead of big grand slams, I think is storylines 
And now we have a great storyline with Aslan Karatsev and, and we were able to highlight that. So I think that's what's maybe more important uh, rather than like, well, I'm going to be angry because you didn't know his name. Um, Sergei Stokowski, I was familiar with his name. Um, credit to him for a big time victory at Wimbledon in 2013. Hasn't done much since, but that's... And, and I, look forward to here refer- there. I look forward to refereeing or moderating his podcast appearance between the two of you whenever <laughs> yeah. that should happen. Yes, yes. When, yeah, we'll see if that happens. Um, we should move on to talk about the Canadians. Um, unfortunately, we didn't really have deep runs into the second week on the singles side. We kind of highlighted that on the last podcast. But at least for your money, who was the most impressive Canadian to you at this Australian Open? Well, I'm going to go with, um, with in doubles, um, and she made it to the second week, and she made it to the quarterfinals of a slam for the first time in her career at, at the age of 30, which is super impressive. And that's Sharon Fishman, who I was able to speak with last week. And, uh, I mean, anyone who's ever listened to Sharon speak before who's had the pleasure of, of encountering her, she's just one of the most positive, uh, you know, people around. And so to see someone like her who works so hard, treats others so well, um, who took time off from the sport and came back after a two-year hiatus. Really great to see her have a rewarding moment like that to make it to uh, the quarterfinals of a slam and not just make the quarterfinals, but push the third seeds from the Czech Republic to, to three sets, I believe. And, uh, and they ended up making it all the way to the, the finals. So, you know, lots of uh, reason to hold her head up there for Sharon Fishman. And, um, these comeback stories on the the Canadian side, Rebecca Marino, who we spoke with, with Courtney, obviously wonderful to see. And, and I also want to give a shout out to Leila Annie Fernandez, who again is just so young, uh, you know, making main draws of some slams for the first time here also made it, uh, you know, fairly deep or or deeper than expected in the women's doubles draw uh, with her partner, Heather Watson. And what struck me with Leila is uh, when she mentioned what her goal was for 2021 and she always sets them pretty high, and it seems like she's been able to, to make them the past couple of years as she's transitioned from being a junior to a pro tennis player. Well, she said that her goal for 2021 is to crack the top 10, which is obviously a very lofty goal, but she didn't say it with a smirk or a smile or like, a, oh, I really wish this could happen. She said it with intent. And, and that's what impresses me about Leilani Fernandez is she believes in herself so much and she's working so hard and, uh, you know, it's a big goal. I'm not saying I, I see it necessarily happening, but it wouldn't surprise me if she had a big jump in the rankings this year, the way that she's uh, been coming along since, since turning pro. Yeah, I'll be keenly watching her, I think, over the next couple of months. And I think she'll be very hungry to make some deep runs at tournaments. She got a really challenging draw at, the, at this Australian Open. You're trying to start your season off on the right foot. And you see Elise Mertens on the other side of the court. Terrific top 20 player as your first match uh, is very, very challenging. But one thing that I think everybody takes away from watching Layla is her remarkable focus on court. And she is so keen to improve aspects of her game. And we've seen uh, the progression and how she she improves kind of incrementally each season. My pick for favorite Canadian or best performer at the Australian Open, I'll step back to the single side. And despite the fact that he was up two sets to love and couldn't hold on to that lead, I'm still picking Felix Ojealiasim. I thought he had a fantastic tournament. Uh, his victory over Denis Shapovalov, I think a lot of people going into that match were leaning Denis for a victory. And Felix just played an out-of-this-world match, defeating Dennis in straight sets. His defense was unbelievable. We all know about his athleticism. The serve was working, and everything was working, honestly, in that round of 16 match with Karatsev until the Russian kind of flipped a switch and totally turned around the dynamic of that match. So 
I mean, I mean, it saddens me in one aspect that I feel like Felix, if he finishes out that round of 16, he probably makes the semifinal because Grigor Dimitrov had a back.